Well, this is a series about getting out of your own way, about embracing a new year and, and seeing that some of the patterns we want to change, some of the goals we want to achieve, have a lot more to do with something more foundational than the particular effort or goal or pattern that you're thinking about. G.K. Chesterton again said, as I mentioned last week, if you want a white post to stay white, you must always be painting it again and again or it will turn gray. In other words, you must always be having a revolution. So what, what happens in the fruit of the tree really has a lot more to do with the soil, right? And so this January, we're, we're looking at this heart and soul, heart, soul, mind, and strength, that loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, understanding what it is to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, how, how that becomes like the base camp, the base of operations. And what happens at base camp lends strength to all of your endeavors up on the trail to the ridge. This morning, we're, we're, we're talking about loving God with all your heart, all your heart. And that means being able to understand what we're talking about when we're talking about the heart. We're not talking about your feelings. We're talking about the will, your will. To pursue God, to love God with all your heart is to follow him with all your will. There's, a, there's an old fairy tale that C.S. Lewis wrote called The Princess and Curtie. And Curtie is this underdog hero. And Curtie at one point has his hands placed into this, fire, this mystical fire of roses. And it makes his hands and gives him the ability to see what someone is becoming just by putting their hands on them. You know, we see the outward appearance. We... We think we know somebody. We think we're discerning. And then they do something or they make a decision or something. And, and, and you realize, I didn't really know this person at all. And Curdy is able to lay his hands on somebody and see what they're becoming. Where are they headed? What's the trajectory of their life? What's really going on inside them? What, what is their will really directed at? Lewis later puts it this way. He says this. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. You're becoming either an immortal horror or an everlasting splendor. Now, that's what Curdy was able to see. Now, maybe the question for us is, how do we, how do we yield? How do we, understand, how do we understand which way we're going? And can, can someone going one direction go another direction? The answer is yes. How does that happen? Well, by surrendering your life, by yielding your life. But let me, let me drill down before we read this scripture. Why does yielding to God's will change us? You ever thought about that? Why exactly 
does surrendering our will to God's will make any difference in your character, in your life, in what you're becoming? Why does that have power? Well, the answer is, it reorders our love. It reorders our life. From the Word of God, 1 Samuel chapter, chapter 16, this is a story of this transition from Saul, King Saul, in the Old Testament, to King David, the poet king. Hear God's word this morning. The Lord said to Samuel, who was a prophet, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said this, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by and said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven others of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him. For we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him. Now he was ruddy and beautiful, had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David and from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A couple of times I've mentioned what are called the new atheists, and the new atheists are spouting old-time religion. They're, they're really just rehashing the Enlightenment on the basis or foundation of just try harder to be a good person. Christopher Hitchens is one of those. Brilliant journalist, great author, great in the sense of just so his prose is rich. He's really bright. He's deceased now, but he wrote a book, one of his last books, it may be his last book, called God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. Now, that's not a very cheery subject for a Sunday morning, is it? 
But if we're going to understand how and what is the authentic life change that, that comes from Christianity, we've got to understand our critics. We've got we to be able to distinguish between what our critics are shooting at and what the scriptures are actually calling us to. Hitchens talks about how uh, much of his book really aims at Christianity and the ways that, uh, that the church has been used, or the institutional church has been used in ways that have been uh, used its power to hurt people. But you have to recognize, too, well, what's the alternative, Christopher Hitchens? What's the alternative? I mean, the 20th century, which he points people to as, as, as having this, uh, this, this manifestation of the Enlightenment and, and the ability for us to, to, to chart our own course and through reason alone to, to be able to, uh, to bring progress, that very program of the Enlightenment was the foundation for 50 million people being executed. The genocides of the 20th century, the bloodiest century of all human history, you think of Chairman Mao, you think of Stalin, you think of Hitler and Mussolini, all these, uh, all these who rose up in the name of reason, rejecting faith, pushing aside religion, pushing, pushing just our human ability to chart our own course, to be the captains of our own soul. Well, you see the fruit of it. So what's the alternative? Now, he's right. Religion, it's, uh, religion does poison things. The idea of moralism is what I'm, uh, the way I'm using that religion. But Christianity is about relationship. So the question again is this. How is it that in yielding to God, that restored relationship makes any change in your life? What exactly is going on? By yielding our will, we're talking about all your heart, by yielding your will, not just your feeling, but your very will. How does yielding your will make a change in you what's going on well what's happening is that god is reordering your life you know, when, when god when god created everything what did he say when when he created everything he said it is good and that included humankind when he made human beings he made them good he said that it's very good they're very good this was before the fall and a lot of times I think what we think of as, as, as the goal of our faith, of following Christ, is to become more like angels. No. You're supposed to be, become a human being, more fully awake and alive to what God originally intended. And when we yield our will to his will, here's what happens. He reorders your who, and he reorders your why. Let's look at the way that God reorders our lives. Just bearing down on those two aspects of life. Who you are becomes reordered when we yield our will. And our motives, the why of our lives, becomes reordered. First, the who. When we yield to God's will, when our will yields to God's will, he reorders the who. You become a lot more of what God intended you to become. You can become everything he intends for you to be when you yield to his will. Let me, uh, let me tease that out a little bit. Now, what, what my wife Beth and I have been dealing with over the past few months has been difficult. As you all uh, have entered into it, uh, we can recognize that you know it's difficult. 
One of the most difficult parts during the last few months has been just wrestling with that whole sense of what's going on here? Why is God bringing this into our life at this time? And when you have that kind of threat, when, you, when someone's life is, is threatened like that, you, uh, you, everything else, uh, all the clutter of your life kind of goes away. <laughs> and things get, you know, the priorities of life get pretty clear. And one of the things that, that, that we came to the conclusion uh, around was when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he had, and, and I mentioned this a couple of months ago, that Jesus really was, was praying with two hands. On the one hand, he was saying, let this cup pass from me. This is what I want. See, Jesus had a will. He had a heart. He had a, he had a will. He had the power of what he wanted, what he desired, what he, not just how he felt, but what did he will? So in one hand, with one hand he prayed, let this cup pass from me. But then with the other hand he said, not my will, but your will be done. When we pray with these two hands, you are still you. Not just some wet noodle you. Oh God, whatever, you know. You know, thy will be done, thy will be done, thy will be done. You know, get up and all day you're just sort of in a shallow way, just saying whatever God wills is fine with me. Do you even know who you are? Are you even showing up to that prayer? He said, when you say, let this cup pass from me, you're being honest with yourself. You're being honest with God. And then when you face that something is possible that might be different from what you want, now you're in it. And you're right where God needs you to be. And that is a place of authentic surrender. Not just of your feelings, but of your will. You've identified what you really want. And then you're saying, you know what? I don't need to just, there was a powerful moment in a movie I saw one time that said, don't just follow your heart, lead your heart. Well, not quite. Your heart needs leadership, but it's not you. You see, we all are trying to manage our way a lot of times, manage our way. Even the ways that we try to, try to just do things better is one of the ways we are prone to wander because we think on our own, if I just try harder, if I just manage better, you don't need better management. You know, like the sign that says, hey, please come to our establishment. We're under new management, right? Right? You don't need new management. You need a new leader. Your heart, your will needs leadership. You know, in, in our modern age, as modern people, what we're told is that the most authentic you is your feelings, your deepest feelings. And that you're supposed to follow your feelings. And that you're supposed to identify what you really feel about things. Feelings have become sort of exalted as the, 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 the power engine of your life. It, it, it's becoming the foundation. No, no matter what, if someone feels a certain way about, about any aspect of their lives, we're supposed to bow down and consider it sacred. And we're watching families devolve into chaos and make choices that they will later deeply regret. There's not just feelings that make you up. And I'm not saying that, that feelings are, are somehow bad or that we should uh, deny them or repress them. They need leadership. 
And so let's look at it this way. So what's going on when it says, love God with all your heart? When this passage says that, that we look on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart, what's he looking at? He's looking at the will. And so when you're tempted, when there's some temptation, and you're feeling a certain thing, and, and you think, I just need a little bit more of that, whatever it is, or I just need to say that about that person, whatever that temptation is for you, there is there's the feeling about it, and then there's the will. And that's your, that's the you. That's the central core spirit of you. That's your heart. And it's adding its yes or its no to that whole equation. And you're going to balance that scale one way or another. Your yes or your no in temptation is your will. And your will is you. And so when we succumb to temptation, it's not how we feel that makes us do it. It's not the external circumstance that makes us do it. It's your will. It's your yes or your no. And that decision to place your yes on one side of the scale or your no on the other side of the scale in a thousand ways a day is what you're becoming. Now, here's the key. The key is this. When we yield our will to God, we become responsive to God. Responsive to Him. And so now it's not just a matter of trying harder to put your yes or your no on the right scale. It's saying, Lord, I'm trying to surrender here. Help. I want to respond to your will. Now you become a follower, you see? It's different. Hitchens criticized the church. Hitchens criticized Christians who leveraged the church for their power. But what Christianity is in the heart of Christianity is the heart. It's to say that the that, that followers of Jesus Christ are not responsible for their virtue, but when they respond to the will of God in the difficulties of life, in the highs and lows of life, God is able to turn us from eternal hoarders to everlasting splendors. We don't get the credit. We're responding to his will. Now you say, well, you know, there are a lot of things in my life that I don't like that are going on. And I don't know what God's will is. And I don't really, sometimes I'm, I'm not even sure if, if God is for me. You know, and I see the circumstances of my life. How do you think you're going to be changed if, if God only is drawing you by his will in a way that you've already decided you need to go. If you only say, well, God only loves me and God only has a great plan for my life if everything's unfolding the way I have already decided it should go. You see, part of, part of what we have to deal with is, Jeremiah 17, 6 says it, the heart is deceitful. And to be able to look at the brutal facts and know that that's not the end of the story. To, to know that, that David was so different from, from Saul, not because he, he wasn't defined by his worst acts. And you can have a whole list of them. You know, David did worse things than probably you ever did. But God looked on the heart. He knew what he was becoming. He knew that his will was surrendered to him. He knew that his will was tender to him. He knew that his will was responsive to him. And he can work with that. And he can work with your worst as well. Don't expect it to be easy. As Chesterton said, 
you know, Christianity hasn't been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. Now, a lot of times where we leave it untried is when God is bringing before us a decision or a difficulty or a circumstance or a trial or a temptation. And that's the very place where we have the opportunity to know who we really are. Do you have a leader? Does your will have a leader? Do you understand yourself, in other words, in relationship to God? Or is God just part of your life, a means to an end, because you are your own God? You see, our idols, the idols just multiply. Calvin said the heart is an idol factory. We're always looking for ways that we can sort of have control over our lives. But when we see ourself in relationship to God and our will is responsive to God, you understand who you are. You show up to that prayer. But you also understand who you are with respect to God. And that makes all the difference. You become more of what he calls you to be when you recognize that God made, him, made you for himself. God made you, and he made you for himself. And so when you relate well to him, when you respond to him, when your will is responsive to him, you become more of what he has called you to be. Now, there's a little illustration about this that I, I used to use with students, and I think it, I, it helps me too. You know, if you take water, and, and, and this has to do with just are you following your feelings or do your feelings and your will have a leader? Does it have leadership? If you take neutral water, and, you, and, and maybe your hands are in hot water, and you put your hands in that neutral water, like just lukewarm water, it's going to feel cold. If you take your hands and you put it in an ice bucket, and you put it in the same temperature water, it's going to feel warm, right? Now, now picture that. Our point of reference is often our feelings. And again, in a modern age, we think, well, feelings are everything. How you feel in that moment. I mean, we're having this national debate about, about gender uh, and centering it on, on a six-year-old who has a certain feeling about himself. And, and we're, we're, we're making that the authority in that child's life? How responsible is that? Children need leadership. Your feelings need leadership. Your will needs leadership. And when God looked at David, he said, here's someone who is tender to my will. Here's someone who is responsive to my will. No matter what he's doing and what he'll do along the way, I can work with that. So, a yielded will, ordered under the, the will of God, brings change. Brings change because we understand who we are in relationship to God. But also, a yielded heart, a heart yielded to the will of God, changes us because it gives us a new why, a new motive for everything we're doing. It's so oppressive to be constantly sifting your motives. So oppressive to be constantly wondering, are my good deeds stacked up high enough over my bad deeds? Because when you really examine your good deeds, if you really examine the why of your good deeds, the good things you do, the best things you do, you'll find a little 
corruption in there every single time. And you can despair over that, or you can recognize that God can work with that too. When we are responsive to God in terms of our motives, our why, when we're responsive to God, he can bring a change of heart. He can change your life. He can bring you to become all that you're called to be. What am I talking about? Here's an example. In 1 John, it says this. We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. And so in other words, when we recognize we don't get the credit, that we're responding to God, then, then now you have a whole new base of operation, a whole new motive, a whole new why to everything you do. You have the opportunity to have a brand new why, a new drive for all the things that you're trying to accomplish. Let me illustrate that with a story of somebody that you, most of you probably know who this is, but he doesn't, you don't know him by his name, Eugene. Eugene was born into a family of 14, 14, he had dyslexia. He was not a very good student. But he had dreams of going to the university one day. The university was nearby him. What he ended up doing was going to, uh, into the military for a couple of years. And after serving his time there, he came out and he went to Holy Cross for a couple of years to be able to get his grades up to where he could get into this major university nearby. nearby. Eugene wanted to play football, too. He really wanted to play football. He was five foot six and 160 pounds. Yeah, think about that. He wanted to play football in college. 5'6", 160 pounds. He wasn't even in the school yet, and he had dreams of walking on. And at, at the time, this particular football program had the opportunity for people to just walk on and, and try out. Well, Eugene did pretty well at Holy Cross, and he, he got fair enough grades that he was able to get in to, uh, to Notre Dame. And, uh, and so uh, he now was enrolled in the school where he wanted to be a part of the football program. And he, he walked on, and, and he became part of a team that was part of the team in this respect that he was really the punching bag for the, 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 the starting lineup. And so he was on the team, but he was really there just to help the team practice. But Eugene had such a heart. He had such power and, and passion for the game. And it wasn't any longer, and, and, and the coaches began to recognize that Eugene, Eugene, wasn't just wanting to get on the team for himself. You see? They could see a different drive. Now that he was on the team, they recognized in him a different motivation, a motivation to be a part of something bigger. And you know what? It, in a good way, it infected the rest of the team. And the rest of the team began to recognize that they were part of something bigger than themselves. And because of his influence, because of his influence in 1975, they beat Georgia Tech. Now, this is probably not the best illustration because I'm here in Georgia and there's some Georgia Tech people in here. But they beat Georgia Tech in the finals. And, and it was Eugene in the final play who sacked the quarterback. Eugene, all five foot six, 160 pounds of them, sacked the quarterback. He was the first of only two people uh, on uh, the Fighting Irish ever to be carried off the field on their, sh- on their shoulders. And uh, you've seen the movie. Probably some of you have seen the movie or read the book, Rudy. This is Rudy, Rudinger. Rudy, Rudy, right? Rudy was the one who, 
who motivated the people around him because they recognized in him a totally different why, a totally different motive, a freedom from, from having to constantly be wondering if he was going to earn his way onto the team. He was on the team, and he recognized what a privilege it was. He recognized what opportunity he had, and as a result, responding to the yes of his coaches, he added his yes to the team in a way that brought a different kind of attitude, a different motivation for the entire season. And every teammate recognized it. You see, I think a lot of people think that, that uh, when, when, when the church or church leaders, they can't do it quite right, they don't measure up quite right, or they stumble. We can do it better. You know what? We can do it better. And that's what was going on in this day and age in, in the Old Testament. Eventually, uh, the, the Pharisees and these different factions of, 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 uh, of the Hebrews sifted out and said, you know, we just need more rules. That's what we need. We just need more external rules. And they, they boiled things down to 613 different rules. And you're constantly trying to make sure that everything you were doing was just right. You know, I see that going on today. I see that very thing going on today. It's a different set of rules. It's a different set of virtues. And sometimes it's so difficult. Sometimes the, the, the rule book or the, 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 the new set of rules or, or the virtues are based on someone uh, or a class of people or, a, or a, an oppressed people or a group of people, a, a whole variety of groups where people are asking for justice for them. And they're right. They're right about the need for justice. But making that as a foundation for who you are and why you do what you do is just the same old-time religion. Let's just write a new rule book and let's try to follow those. Let's, let's, let's make up a whole bunch of words you're not supposed to say and let's, let's have a, a whole bunch of new words you're supposed to say and let's compel your speech and let's, let's in fact, let's take little teeny degree turns and let's start getting to where uh, it, it's going to be against the law to say certain things. But God measures the heart. Does that change people? To make things, uh, to make people's behavior suit you or follow a certain rule book, does that really change people? No, it doesn't. As a matter of fact, let me close with this illustration. We're going to build on this next week. A guy named Peter um, Melodinik, who is from um, Poland, came up with that bumper sticker, that insignia, coexist. Coexist. Have you seen it? It's all these different symbols of all these different world religions. Coexist. It's a new rule book. It says, look, can't we all just get along? No, Peter, we can't. That's the problem. The human heart is sick and needs a leader. Well, here's the ironic twist to the story. I found this out this week. Peter uh, uh, Medozinik is in a lawsuit because somebody else was using his insignia. You know, you know, the, the one that you see on bumper stickers was changed from his original, and he's mad about it, and he's suing the people who are using it. Are you getting what I'm saying, people? Yeah, little irony. Coexist, Peter. You see, we can keep inventing a new rule book. We can keep working on the externals. 
But if you don't get to the heart, if you don't understand that the heart is the will of you and that the will needs a leader, round and round she goes. Where she stops, nobody knows. We need a leader. You need a leader. Your heart, to love God with all your heart means this. It means increasingly. Knowing him increasingly well. Yielding to him. Showing up to the prayer with what you want but being willing, having a willing spirit to be led by the one who made you for himself. Let's pray together. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, how we thank you that you were fully God in our midst, but fully man. That you walked in such a way that modeled for us a better way, but not only that, We're not called to just manage better and follow your example. You've given us the power that somehow in the mystery of our responding to your will, you change us, you turn us, and from the inside out, we become all you've called us to be. God, we thank you that you who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. In Christ we pray, amen.